The music of Level 42 is addicting. And if that's the case, fans of their music have been in rehab for 30 years. That's when bassist Mark King and keyboardist Mike Lindup started injecting lyrics into their fusion, funk-based tracks at the suggestion of their label in 1980. It created a sound that has been labeled as jazz funk, sophistopop, new wave, pop rock, and funk pop. Whatever you call it, there's not a sound like that of Level 42. Over the years, King's sharp vocals and bass slapping technique have merged with Lindup's falsetto harmonies to deliver hits such as Something About You, Lessons in Love, Children Say, Star Child, and It's Over. After heavy touring and several personnel evolutions over the years, Level 42 suffered a band split in the mid-1990s. But we're glad to say that King and the band have emerged once again. This past summer, they completed their first U.S. tour in over 22 years, which has made their American fans extremely happy. The good news is that there's still an enormous appreciation for their music, and that makes us happy.
Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Level 42's Mark King. Hey, Mark, thanks for joining us here on Inside Music Cast today. My pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Also joining us on the line via Skype uh, is Brian Pearson, one of our Inside Music Cast correspondents. Very excited to join you guys today, so thanks for having me. No problem. Well, you know, first of all, like I just mentioned, or we were talking about prior to getting started here, Eddie and I are thrilled to have you as a guest here in Inside Music Cast. And, you know, we've had numerous requests by fans of our show to have you on, and, and we finally tracked you down. And I, I do want to thank one of our Inside Music Cast listeners, mm-hmm. uh, Jason yeah. Knuckles, for helping us uh, get in contact with you. Yes, oh, yes. yeah, Jason. That's, that's, he's such a great name, Jason Knuckles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, sounds, he sounds like a hard nut, doesn't he? You know? <laughs> So let's let's start off uh, by talking about a couple of uh, recent events with with Level Forty Two, and the first the first right off the bat here is the box that you released called Living It Up, which is a four CD set it's containing material from the the thirty year history of the band. And and uh, this box set isn't necessarily just a complete collection of your work. Explain how you chose the content for this box set. Yeah, yeah it was um, it was about this time last year, really, that the um, th- that. Uh, we lost my father uh, passed away unfortunately you know uh, last october the 29th okay and it was as these things always are you know it was a real blow to the family and and uh, i had the whole sort of down period and trying to cope with the bereavement thing um just like everybody does of course mm-hmm. um and after the funeral i thought right that's it you know i've got to sort of pick myself up now and, and crack on with things so sort of what's in the diary and there wasn't a huge amount, I have to say. Um, so I thought, right, I'm going to start this ball rolling because 2010, which was, of course, just around the corner, was going to be our 30th anniversary. Uh-huh. And much as I'm not a great sentimentalist with, you know, to me, one day's another day and another year's another year. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, I thought, well, this would be a good reason, uh, you know, to hang a project on. So I called up the guys at Universal Music here in the UK and said, look, you know, it's going to be our 30th anniversary. Um, how about we get our heads together and see if we can't come up with something that, um, you know, the fans would like. And so we did exactly that. And part of the, the, um, the for me, part of the attraction was that I could actually include some new material with this. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the CDs of the four CDs was um, uh, an acoustic version right. or acoustic version, sorry, of 10 of our um, sort of past songs. And that, that was great fun to do. And, um, uh, it really came about because when we'd been doing the last tour um, and we were doing a lot of radio promotion, the radio stations very much like you to sort of go in and do the whole unplugged thing, yeah. right. which as as an electric bass player isn't, uh, you know, isn't the... Uh, the sort of the most attractive thing to me to be quiet. Unplug with the bass. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It doesn't it doesn't sound quite the same when it's not plugged in. So, um, but I, you know, n- nonetheless, I thought, well, if if we, you know, I need the I need the promo with the radio station. So let's sort of get get the guitar out and see just exactly how these songs will sort of work themselves out. So yeah. we did versions of something about you and lessons in love and uh, right. it's over and, you know, a, a bunch of other songs. And and I was really surprised at how, um, how well they lent themselves to being sort of reconstructed, if you like, yes. because um, it's an interesting thing. You've got the lyrics already there and you've got melodies if you choose to use them. Um, but I found that when I, I sort of approached it from, not from the bass angle, uh, you know, just from a six-string acoustic guitar thing. Boy, mm-hmm. the songs took on a whole, a whole new life. You know? Yes, definitely. 
Well, you know, what's striking to me about these acoustic versions are the not only the wonderful arrangements, but the vocal harmonies, which are, you know, they're nothing short of beautiful. And, and give us a little background on how you developed these arrangements. I mean, was it, was it primarily your effort or were other members of the band in, involved in this development? Well, it was, I had Mike Lindup, who's been my sort of constant partner in Level 42, really, sure, for, right. for the last 30 yeah, years. of course. Um, and, and is also the, the, the sort of co-vocalist in the band with me. Uh-huh. Um, he came down really because I, I, I wanted to do some, a new songwriting exercise uh, and was sort of just looking at the idea of, of um, this would have been about last February time. You know, I invited Mike down to see if we could come up with a, some, some new material uh-huh. just as a songwriting exercise. And he, hearing, um, while I was sort of sat there, I, I said to Mike, you know, um, I really do want to sort of pursue this thing of looking at, the uh, the acoustic versions of some songs, and as soon as we said that, we you know, I just I just sort of started going into the an idea that I had for the the remake of of Lessons in Love, and of course Mike, because I've known him so long, he just jumped straight in with it, yeah, uh, and off we went. You know, it was um, it was pretty. Uh, pretty spontaneous and yeah. pretty fluid, but the whole harmony thing. It's I'm I'm very glad that you like it because it was it's one of those situations where with the technology that you have available to you these days, i.e., you know, the Macintosh and right. you've got limitless um, tracks to record on, it's, it gets so easy to sort of gild the lily, as yeah, it were. And, exactly. and um, I'm, because there's nobody, it's just you sitting in there with a the microphone and the equipment, you can kind of just go nuts. Yeah. And, and sometimes you, you can't see the wood for the trees. And it's like when I remember when I sort of delivered this and then I listened back to it myself, I had a bit of a moment. I thought, Wow, if I ever cook this, you know, does it really need that that much stuff on it? So I'm very pleased that you like it. Thanks, yeah. guys. Well, um, I want to ask a, a question in particular on the, one of the acoustic um, tracks uh, on "It's Over." Uh, the way you translated your vocal harmonies are, were those basically uh, the, were they based on the cordings of the synth patches from the original tunes? Because uh, I just love the the track and, and the patches, the the sensitive patches that you had on the original track. Um, it seems as if you were sort of emulating them with a more yes, uh, just a uh, human most, feel. It was beautiful. It, it was, I think. Um, yeah, for sure, because the, the pad s- sort of layering up in yeah. there um, that was actually generated at the time from an old, um, the, the old Yamaha TX816. This yeah. was like a bank of seven DX7s. Yeah, in a I, row. Had, I had a few of those. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with it. it was a, it's, I've, st- I've still got one in the garage, but uh, I then sort of transferred those sounds to the TX802. Yeah. I don't know how sort of techy I can get with chat in there. Oh, that's... You can get very techy. I think uh, Brian. I think you'll you Brian is a keyboardist and I am too. So we've we've had these same uh, modules that you you're talking about yeah. right now. Yeah. Well, they're, they're classic sounds, and the the thing is that when we you know working with Wally Badger all through the 1980s, he he is such a great um, sound guy, and he, in fact he's the only guy I know who could actually unravel the FM synthesis mm-hmm. thing because he, he'd actually get in there and, and start making his own sounds at it. Where, all we ever did was push a button and, and get somewhere. But Wally used to get these these wonderful pad things going on, yeah. um, and of course the if you if you we at one point we had two TX eight one sixes working you know side by side mm-hmm. and just panned out. So that's the equivalent of like fourteen DX sevens. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it was you know Wally's just just fantastic at that sort of thing. So it's interesting that you you know that you sort of you know that you heard that. Perhaps I was trying to emulate that in the way I laid the the harmonies down in, in the very in the the two bridges actually in it's over. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's homage to um, 
John McLaughlin in there because the the way I sort of voiced the the chords running down of that the bit you know yes, you get yeah, me yeah. everything it's right. um it's more than a little Mahavishnu in there yeah 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 it's very nice.
You know, speaking about this this box set and, and particularly this acoustic collection, how did you decide on、uh, these particular songs, the ones that you chose for that disc, and and did you happen to record other songs、uh, with these acoustic arrangements that didn't make the cut? No, not at all. Actually,、okay. it's、um, I've, I can't say that I've ever been one for、um, you know having a plethora of material lying around.、Uh-huh. Um, you know, we, we and it's always the last minute when when we finally did do these、uh, laid this stuff down.、Um, when I said to Uh, the guys at Universal, you know, I, I said, "Can I include this?" You know, and they went, "Oh, that would be fantastic! Yeah, you know, absolutely brilliant!" You know, so and I said, "Well, so when do you need it by?" And they said, two weeks time," <laughs> which is kind of, "Oh, wow!" So wow. we still have to get Mike down and do all the bits and pieces. So we, we had a real short、um, time space to be able to do this thing in. Of course, the, the company then did what big companies always do, and then they sort of reneged on the release date. And and I, I really would have had another three months because they put the whole thing back and back and back. So. But it's it's good to have it's good to have a deadline, and sometimes it can really sort of polarise the way you you think and the work process, and it makes you get on and do it.、Yeah. But no, we just had the ten track sets. Okay. Yeah, I read、uh, talking to Rick last night, and by far, disc four is worth the price of admission. Mark, we recently、uh, read on Facebook recently that there was a problem with one of the CDs in the box set, and they were、yeah. going to be replaced. Yeah, apparently so, and and、um, that the guys at Universal. In fact, I got an email about it yesterday. Julian Fernandez,、um, UK, said that they've sorted it out now, and they've they've had a whole batch、um, repressed. Apparently, some it's a, it's a, it was only some of disc one、um, appeared to be mastered in mono for some bizarre reason, and I don't know what it is. Ah,、oh, but I do know what it is. It's because I'm sure it all goes out to the lowest flipping bidder, and there's some bloke sat in a flat somewhere in. Czechoslovakia burning these things by hand. I think. <laughs> and, and now it's a limited edition. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hey, Mark. As part of your、uh, your thirty year anniversary, of course, you toured the states and、uh, this past summer for around a dozen or so shows, mainly on the coasts.、Uh, from what I understand, these shows were very well received. And how long、uh, how long had it been since the the band had last performed here? It was beautiful. We had、um, we, we did ten shows actually, and it、mm-hmm. was、um, and it had been twenty two years, I think, since we last graced your shores, which is way too long.、Um, yeah. Of course, it is. But funnily enough, it's it, it's not down to the artist. It's it's down to a promoter bringing the artist across. And、yeah. um, I'll I'll play anywhere. I'm a regular Mickey Rooney. Me, you know, I'll do the show <laughs> right here, and, and、uh, I'll go anywhere, anytime, any place. But We do need. It's you know you can't just do that. You can't just sort of show up with a, a banjo and off you go. It's、yeah. there's a lot involved to, to you know. You, in fact, getting into the states these days, guys, is a freaking nightmare. Yeah.、Um, you know that we you got to go and queue up at eight a.m. in the morning to get your visas, and then that costs a fortune. And then you got to have carnets. The whole thing is really not simple. You know. It's crazy. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. I'm afraid this、well. is what life's like in 2010. Really, it's just.、Uh, Just sort of bizarre security-wise, and、yeah. it's it's ironic, really, because the, the the one the one beautiful thing about music is that it's completely、um, you know it has no borders. You can go anywhere with it, and you play music to people in Japan, you know, which we did this year. You play 
you know, the guys in the States, you go any country, anywhere in the world, and people love their music, you yeah. know, and it's, it's great. It's uh, politics is the thing that seems to get in the way. <laughs> well, Ed, Eddie and I had planned to catch uh, your show in Pittsburgh, but neither of us was able to actually make it to the show. But it begs me to ask if you guys, you know, based on the success of the shows that you had here, do you plan to come back to the States in the near future? I'd, I'd, I'd love to. And I, I'd sort of made a promise that we'd be, we would be back because it was, we, you know, the response was so touching from the American fans. And I know that they've been waiting a long time to see us. Yeah. Um, and but plus the fact too is that the, the the band is really on fire at the moment. You know, I'm so proud of the the way that Level Forty Two is working out at the moment. We've got a um, a new guy in on drums with us, uh, Pete Ray Biggin, mm-hmm. and the, the fact that we've got a new face in there, and the fact that he is such a, a, a talent, um, has sort of breathed a whole new lease of life into the whole thing. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, my, my my very best friend in the world is Gary Husband, and I love yeah, the, sure. the whole thing about him. You know, the the guys. The guy's a genius in my eyes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been with Gary for oh, eighteen years or something. He joined us in eighty-seven, right. and um, you know, so it's this sort of this new breath of fresh air came in, and it sort of gave me a good kick up the backside, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. As indeed has Mike and, um, and my brother Nathan King plays guitar and sings as well, and we right. have a great sax player, Sean Freeman, who also sings. That's uh, yeah. Uh, you know, another string to his bow. It's not very often you get singing saxophonists. Yeah. But, uh, well, th- this band, this current lineup of Level Forty Two, it's essentially your solo band, correct? Yeah, it is. It, it is. It's, it's. It was based really on on the the band that I took out right. um, in 1998, uh, I beg your pardon. When when I I had a solo album out called One Man, and I t- it was one of those things where I tried to um, I tried to develop my songwriting um, for other people. And this was sort of back in 1996. Um, and I had this sort of collection of songs. Um, one of them, uh, which became the, uh, a single for, for that album, One Man, uh, was called Bitter Moon. And I'd written right. that very much with KD Lang in mind. I thought that this would be, if I, I didn't know how I was going to get the song to her, but I thought, well, this, you know, maybe because I know that she does covers. And, and then the other song, um, uh, and, uh, I can't remember what the song was called now, but anyway, um, or. Oh, I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, I'd written this one for Brian Ferry, who was, the, the, of course, the Roxy Music dude. And, um, uh, you know, but as, when I took the songs to the publisher, because they said, you know, what are you up to these days, Matt? And I said, well, I've got this stuff. They, they said, oh, well, it sounds just fine with you singing it. You know, why don't you just do a solo album yourself and we won't bother sort of looking for anybody else. And so that's really how I got into doing the next solo album, which was the one-man thing. And then, of course, having, um, having made that, um, I, I wanted to go out and tour it, and so we did. I had like a week at um, upstairs at uh, the uh, sorry J- the Jazz Cafe in London, and then I did a week at Ronnie Scott's in um, Birmingham in, mm-hmm. in England, uh, and then I sort of went out and, and went across Europe, and we did Scandinavia and Holland and some shows in Germany, and we did one show, believe it or not, in Austria um, at Ramsau, which was where they were holding the Winter Olympics. Um, outside, it was minus 18 degrees. It's the silliest God. thing I've ever done. I've got no idea who booked us into that one. But uh, <laughs> it was seriously cold, man. <laughs> Those kissing words that come out of your mouth Sweet promises to break my heart You talk of love Those kissing words, they climb in 
I just want to throw one thing in real quick, and this is this is really bizarre. I, I had no idea that you wrote Bitter Moon with the idea of Katie Lang in mind. But yeah, if you can be bothered to do it, have a listen to the song again and imagine her doing it because the, I'd sort of structure the whole melody about the way that she – because nobody sings like she does. Like she's right. just beautiful. But, but the strange thing about this is is – I've you know I've heard that song you know a zillion times since you released it in 1998, and I've when I hear that song, I think of Katie Lang, and <laughs> I do because of the the way the vocals sort of swoon, you know, and she's kind of a uh, she's kind of a crooner in a way. She is a crooner, yeah. Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah, she's she's <laughs> fantastic. I mean, I've got so so much of her stuff on my iPod, and um, you, you know, whenever you play, she just makes you feel great because she makes you feel great about being a musician and. And the whole musicality thing, and um, I've also just sort of rekindled my love for Joni Mitchell as well, actually. So because um, Mike uh, played me an album of hers, uh, you yeah. know, when we were out on the road, and yeah. uh, it's, it's this one where she does the ballads. I'm sorry, my memory's dreadful, but I can't remember. <laughs> the name of the album. So it's the whole sort of like Nelson Riddle thing, and of course he's not, exactly. but it's these beautiful arrangements. <laughs> and you know, man, when you get a great singer, it's just uh, yeah. Even, you know, as an, I'm an instrumentalist. I mean, I, you know, I'm sort of a bass player come drummer. And for me, though, the, the, 
the fantastic thing about a vocalist is that everybody possesses a voice and I think everybody at some time or other hums a tune and every, it's the one thing that everybody can relate to. Yeah. You know, if you, you hear Stevie Wonder sing and you think, wow, what a fantastic voice. But a lot of people it's kind of ignore the fact that he's one of the most phenomenal keyboard players oh, as well, yeah. but that yeah. kind of gets overlooked because he's got such a great voice and that's the thing that really hits people, you know, is the vocal. Exactly. You mentioned a couple of seconds ago that uh, you, you played the drums. Uh, how old were you when you first began drumming? Because a lot of people know you obviously as a premier bassist and they, that's probably yeah, was, all they've ever heard. I was very, very young. Yeah. I was, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, the, one of my blessings in life, you know, apart from... <laughs> All of it is yeah. the fact that I've always known what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, as a father who's got four kids, I, I know I know how, uh, well, how unsettling it is when you don't know what you want to do in life because my, yeah. my, all my kids seem to sort of, you know, they're not sure what they're going to end up doing or to, how to choose what to do. And I've always known what I wanted to do since the age of five when uh, Santa Claus bought me a paper drum kit. Mm. And um, I was crushed when the, the, the bass drum head split. <laughs> it was <laughs> you know, damn, it was the, so, so disappointing. And I, I sort of really just missed that. And by the time I got to nine years old, uh, I, I heard on the grapevine that there was a drum kit for sale in, in the sort of the local town that's nearby. I say nearby, I mean, I was only nine years old, and I think it was something like a 10-mile walk to go and sort of check this drum kit out, which I did after school. So uh, I, I sort of wandered off and um, sort of got in really late after school one day, and my parents were sort of worried and said, where have you been? I said, oh, I've been to see this drum kit, you know. And I, I think my dad was kind of checking me out because he said, well, come on, you show me where you've been. So we jumped in the car and we drove, you know, back the 10 miles again and knocked on the door with the thruppity bit window. That's why I always remember how to see this, what the address was. Mm -hmm. We went in and there was this like a real old, you know, hodgepodge of a drum, you know, the, the bass drum had big calf heads on it. And uh, the, there was so much brass content in the cymbals. There was one cymbal on a little stand on the bass drum and on the hi-hats that every time you hit it, the, it changed shape. It was just an amazing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, and it came with a set of brushes, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, I had no idea what brushes were, were all about anyway. And so my dad paid over the £10, and, uh, which was kind of a lot of money back then. And off we went. And that was it. I started sort of drumming at the age of nine years old. But... I'm, I'm actually left-handed. I'm naturally left-handed. I write left-handed and do a lot of things left-handed. But um, because, as is, is always with kids, you know, I used to watch people, guys on top of the pops playing drums. It never occurred to me you could set the drum kit up the other way around. So I used to sort of set it up like you see them on top of the pops. Yeah. But, which meant that it sort of forced me to play right-handed. I and, see. Um, I think somewhere down the line that was probably beneficial to me because it, it probably, you know, maybe gave me a nice bit of independence there somewhere along the line of my limbs. But, um, yeah, so I used to drum, and by the time I was 11, I joined a band um, called Pseudo Foot, which mm -hmm. was, uh, uh, um, I suppose nowadays you'd call them a function band. They, yeah. were, uh, they were sort of gigging at a local holiday camp, and they had a sort of a talent hour yeah. and you know they asked any kids who want to get up so i got up and sort of beat seven bells out of the drums and they seemed sort of quite impressed so much so that a couple of weeks later they, they came by the house and said that their drum was leaving did i fancy the gig and i mean i was only 11 years old that's very young and these these are all adults and stuff sure, and right. um and so we did that and i so by the time i was 11 i was doing three nights a week you know in a holiday camp and a couple of local pubs here on the isle of white <laughs> And and then by the time I was four, 14 and 15, I was doing five or six nights a week here. Holy um, I've 
and, and it's, it's a great grounding, you know, playing, because you'd be playing Foxtrots and the Gay Gordons <laughs> and a little swing tune, and then you'd be doing the sort of the chart topping stuff of the day, and then somebody would chuck in a, you know, uh, Superstition from Stevie Wonder and uh, Living for the City and oh, just every kind of music that there sure, is, really. You know, and it gives you such a great grounding. Yeah. Um, I've always... I can never understand it when, when kids say, oh, I'm not interested in playing other people's stuff. You know, right. um, I'm just, I only want to write my own song. That's great. You know, of course, write your own songs, write your own music. That's, that's the, uh, that's the thing at the end of the day. That's the goal. But it, not playing other people's stuff is such a mistake because what you want to do as a musician, you want to be out there. You want to be playing all the time and you want to be playing with as many people as possible. You want to learn. Yeah. You get your chops in, you know, that's what makes you a rounded musician. And it makes it great so that, you know, when we got back off the tour um, last week, uh, I went straight into rehearsals for the Prince's Trush Gala rock concert uh -huh. at the Royal Abbott Hall. And we had two days to sort of bone up on 21 songs, Holy which God. the other artists just kept changing their minds about what songs they wanted to do. So the whole thing was kind of a bit up in the air. But, you know, my grounding in sort of just being able to, jump in on other people's stuff is late you know good sand was laid back then and it's not a problem yeah that's great you know you're without a doubt one of the more talented bassists in the business and when you you play you make it appear so seamless and fluid and tell me about the process of learning the bass and how long it took for you to develop you know the feel and comfort with the instrument you were looking for well thank you very much that's very flattering um I, i've the bass thing for me was uh, i think a, a lot of the the secret the way that I play bass is the fact that I've always really approached it as drumming on uh, on, on the bass guitar, right. um, much more as, say, a percussionist would, you know, like playing congas or bongos. In other words, both hands uh, are equally responsible for what's going on. It's not as if your right hand's holding a plectrum or, or you know, is just sort of triggering the note and, and your left hand is, is, is uh, holding the note down. No, it's definitely the, the, the hammering on and the damping that both hands are doing um, are really, really important. And it's uh, because I sort of approached it that way, um, and, but to be quite honest, I didn't really want to play bass at all. I wanted to play drums. So I wasn't that, you know, I wasn't that precious about it. It was just a way, and because of that, I, I didn't feel I had to toe the line with anything at all. I was just jamming with Mike and, and Phil Gould and uh, Boone Gould at the Guildhall School of Music, just killing time until, you know, the band that I was going to get famous in showed up. It didn't occur to me, of course, that I was, that was the band. I was in it already. But, um, you know, that's like when you're young, you're just sort of, you, you, you're kind of trying to pass the time. So I picked the bass up and I just start this very sort of linear pattern of, of just keeping it exactly the same way that a drummer would, you know. And, um, and that's all I've ever done on the bass. And it's a very different approach to someone say like Marcus Miller or Stanley Clark or Larry Graham, where it's a, theirs is a much more deliberate rhythm, you know, and they sort of go bang. Exactly, bang, right, yeah. And it's a, it's a different thing. So, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've, there's no way, I, you know, I've never said I've invented slap at all. That's, um, but I just do have a, a slightly unique way of doing it. Well, I was, I was going to mention that um, 
um, that that your style is is you're right. It, it's very much more embellished into the rhythmic. It's almost percussive. It's a and yeah, uh, it's, it, it's very percussive. Where your traditional, you know, even the guys like Chuck Rainey that slapped a few times on some Stevie Dan records, you know, it, it's more the traditional status, uh, slapping. But you take it a step beyond, and of course, it becomes very percussive, and and that that adds a whole uh, element because there's very very few people that do that. Yeah, it's it's right, and it's as a as a vocalist as well. Um, it's it makes for a really good foundation to to sort of hang your singing on, because you can you can sing rhythmically or you can drag melodies out, um, but you, you you're sort of you're supplying harmony and rhythm behind it all at the same time. You know, it's it's kind of makes it a bit one man bandish if you follow my. Uh, drift. Exactly. Hey guys, I want to uh, take a quick break and uh, I want to play an instrumental track that was released as a bonus track on a re-release of the Pursuit of Accidents album, along with the uh, Standing in the Light album back in 2000. It was like a double album re-release, I believe. And uh, this is this is a song called The Return of the Rugged Handsome Man.
Eddie has a question, and this question comes from a, a, a listener of Inside Music Cast, and he posed this question on Facebook. Yeah, his name is Scott Davis, uh, Mark, and he's in Florida, and he asks this question. Uh, he said, your bass work is immaculate. Talk a little bit about juggling such wonderful, intricate bass lines with uh, often opposing rhythmic vocal parts. That must be very difficult to do. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. It's, um, uh, you know, it's, I, can, I understand the how tricky it seems uh, because sometimes, uh, you know, I've said that it's good to jump in and do other people's stuff. Yeah. If you try and take on board somebody else's uh, sort of melodic sense and the way that they're playing, you think, oh, wow, that's, that's hard to sing and play at the same time. For me, because I started playing the bass and singing in level 42 all at the same time, we just started doing it all in 1980. Right. Um, it's, it's perhaps not been quite as difficult because I've I've always I've carried the two things along at the same time. If you focus too much on one thing, and uh, it's how can I explain this? It's like sort of Pavlov's dogs. If the song's going along great, um, you you don't really have to think about it. The whole thing just unfolds for you, and it's yeah. it's very nice and fluid. If if one of the other guys does something different, it suddenly makes you think, oh wow, where am I? And then you just have this complete blank, and you think, I haven't got a clue where I am. Yeah, and, I, I, and that's where the bluff comes in. Yeah, I follow you. It's it's almost as if you're, we're addressing it on the outside, listening to you, and and we hear two things happening. On your end, it's one thing happening, but you're doing two things at the same time. Yeah, that's it, and it just seems like the one thing. Yeah, you know? I, and that's why you, you know you can trip up sometimes. Yeah, yeah not yeah. very often, but so, like I said, if something sort of just suddenly comes out of the blue, and all of this is going on, you can actually start you know frothing up one thing i like to do is i like to get i, I have arguments <laughs> but I, you know it's like if you go jogging you the best way to go jogging is 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 to sort of carry somebody in your head that you, you know that you think well i'm not having that and what i and when he said this i should have said this before you know it you've done like three miles and you're absolutely furious and exactly. it's fantastic and it's a bit like that you know on stage is the you know if you if you really getting into a good old chug, you know, something like almost there, it's brilliant. Because I'm suddenly find myself start thinking, well, I'll tell you what, you know, what I'm going to say to him, it's, 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 it's a very bizarre thing. Yeah, that's, that's funny. So was uh, Stanley Clark one of the main influences when it came to the slapping technique? Well, for sure, Stan Clark has been a huge influence on me. Um, but through a backward way, really, it's because I was a massive fan of Lenny White, um, the oh, drummer, yeah. of course, we've sure. returned. right. And um, I went to see Lenny when I was 16, 17 years of age. I, I, I saved up enough money. And, do you remember Laker Airlines, Laker Airways? I, I bought a 76-pound ticket and flew to New York mm-hmm. to, to visit Lenny White. And uh, he, he wasn't there. His wife answered the door. I <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> incredible. I don't know what I thought I was doing, but uh, I just sort of knocked on his door. And uh, his wife answered. She was really sweet, and she said... Um, you know, I said, "Oh, is Lenny in?" She said, "No, no, he's in. Uh, he's in California." <laughs> I, 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 my heart sank, you know. And I said, "Oh no!" I said, "This is terrible." I'm, I mean, I'm the guy that wrote to him from the Isle of Wight, and I mean, you know, the, so many people must have written to him. But she, but she was really lovely, and she said, "Well, look, he'll be back in a week's time. You know, if you are you going to be here?" And it just so happened it was the the very day before I was going to go back to the UK. Um, Lenny called me up at the the apartment I was staying at and said, "Come on over and and." Um, you know, have a listen to this album I've just made. I mean, what what a lovely thing to do, you know, to this kid. And I did. I went over there and I met Donald Blackman, who'd uh, co-produced the, the, the Tales of the Astral Pirates, actually, was the album. And they just finished mixing it. And he, he played it for me. And then he sort of just 
hung with me and made me a cup of coffee and then he took me down to his basement and sort of showed me the, the his, uh, a set of drums that he had there and then there in the in the corner was another an orange Gretsch bass drum and he said that was Mike Shreves and it was just incredible you know I just, but Lenny said uh, Lenny said you know why why are you why have you come here and I, I said well because um, <laughs> I'm on a joint return to forever so could you hand your notice in and I'll take over from now Lenny as if that's going to happen. And um, he said, well, listen, man, you know, you, you've got to make it happen where you are. You know, he said, because whenever I go to, you know, Los Angeles, they all say, man, it's, it's all happening in London. He mm-hmm. said, when I go to London, they all go, man, it's all happening in New York. <laughs> he said, when I go to New York, they all say, man, it's all happening in Los Angeles. Right, and right. And it, he said, the, the thing is, he said, just make it happen where you are, man, make it happen. And yeah. I sort of carried that with me. Now, this is how, because of that, that, that sort of this, you know, Lenny White was my hero. Of course, I, I, I just loved all things, um, you know, Lenny White. And one of those things, of course, was Stanley Clark because he was just always playing the Stan Clark. Sure. And Stanley Clark, you know, if to was so impressive. I, I don't know if you guys can sort of cast your mind back or how old you are, but when he sort of exploded on the scene with Return to Forever, it was um, a re- he was a real phenomenon because yeah. he was just this giant of a man yeah. who yeah. sort of played this bass like nobody else seemed to have been playing it before. And, uh, you know, when you heard tracks like Lopsy Lou and stuff, where he is, you know, he is chugging the bass and slapping it, it's it's, it's just fantastic, yeah. you know, absolutely brilliant. And so, although I wasn't a bass player or didn't intend to be a bass player, I, you know, I wanted to be a drummer, um, obviously when it came time to, for me to, to pick up the bass when Level 42 began, uh, you know, I, one of the ways I wanted to play it would have been like Stan Clark. Yeah. Eddie, Eddie and I had a chance to see uh, Return to Forever a couple of years ago when they reformed and, you know, after, yeah, what, a 20-year 20, 20 hiatus or whatever it was, 25-year hiatus, I think. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, what was what was really cool to me, especially here in the States, uh, and, you know, Eddie and I are based in Indianapolis, so, you know, it's kind of a mid-sized city here in the States. And right. the, the venue, which holds about 2,500 people, was absolutely packed there was not a yeah, room in the house and it was just really refreshing yeah. to see that yeah the same here and because i caught them uh, in london me and the guys from the band went along to see it too gary husband actually he sort of came along with me and my brother nathan and yeah. um, mike lind up and because we it was just on, on the day they were having the jazz awards in in london and i've mm. um, been asked to uh, present award to charlie hayden which yeah. was oh, wow. an absolute honor to Holy do God, yeah. that's wonderful and, and return to forever were also playing they did like an acoustic number at the awards ceremony so it was great i sort of got a chance to catch them twice because they did that stuff and um you know i still never sort of plucked up the courage though to go up and say hello i should have done that shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well hey I, I want to focus on that that period of time around 1979 and 1980 when you you know you guys were essentially forming level 42 and and you know yeah. i i always really enjoy learning about how you know bands sort of come to be and form you know spawning sometimes from connections to other bands and, and in your case you and phil gold were involved in the band m to a degree which which led you to become acquainted with wally Batteru and then yeah, absolutely uh, yeah it was um the the connection there really that with with them came through John Gould who uh, went on to become our manager. Uh, the, he managed us for five years from nineteen eighty to eighty five. Uh-huh. Um, he was uh, Phil and Boone's elder brother and was uh, worked in marketing at A um, and M Records. Hmm. No MCA Records. I beg your pardon, MCA Records in London. And Robin Scott had signed to them and and he sort of dropped this single called Pop Music. Right, which right. just went racing up the charts. Yep. And um, there really wasn't a band as such. There was sort of Robin, his wife, Bridget, uh, a French woman, 
Um, and then there was Julian, his brother, who kind of, you know, played bass from time to time. And then there were the guys that he used, uh, one of them being Gary Barnacle on sax, uh, you know, sort of some months previously. And then Wally Badru, who uh, had come in because of the French connection uh-huh. uh, of his wife, Bridget. Uh, she knew Wally and Wally, I think at the time, was was sort of doing the soundtracks to some dodgy adult industry films or something, you know. And... Um, <laughs> Anyway, he he he'd done this all these keyboard parts for Robin, and then so there actually wasn't a band as such. But now they had this hit record, so what to do? And there certainly wasn't a drummer. Um, so they, John Gould, of course, said, "Well, my brother plays drums. We'll get him to come on top of the pops and uh, mime. You know, just do the bit because it was always playback back then. Nobody ever played live on on the top of the pops, and and of course that was it. So it was." That was uh, the sort of the band that was forced to form. Yeah. And then Robin said, you know, because it was pop music was just sort of completely out of context. And, and then they went in the studio, I think, and, uh, and cut another single, which Phil did play on this time. And then they went on to make an album, The Official Secrets Act. And yeah. Phil, you know, said, oh, listen, you know, you get my friend Mark in too, because we can do these these double drum things, these rototom things. Because once again, I was just thinking about drumming, you know. Sure. And um, so I ended up playing some uh, guitar and I didn't play bass because Ju- Julian was a bit touchy about me sort of having to go on his bass guitar at the time. <laughs> and, well, he had an Alembic and it was funny. He just would never let me touch it because he, he's, uh, you know, and yet this is the first time I'd ever seen an Alembic. But, wow. uh, you know, there you go. So that was, of course, how, um, you know, I'd, Phil and I, I mean, I've known Phil since I was 14 years of age. We played in bands here on the I Like Together, although we were both drummers. We played, uh, there was a, we were in a band called Joe Bear, and um, we had two drummers at one point. But Phil and I were always depping for each other. So, you know, if he'd be doing, working with Pete Cotton here in a holiday camp and then couldn't do it, I'd go and do the gig for him and, you know, vice versa and stuff. So it was a good place growing up, the Isle of Wight. There's lots and lots of music venues to play in, yeah. it being a holiday gener- uh, a venue. And, um, you know, for a, an aspiring musician, that's exactly what you want, just lots and lots of live work. You know, it's great. Yeah. We then went on actually in, in another band, um, 1981, uh, with Leisure Process, when um, Phil and I were asked by Gary Barnacle, who was this once again is the sax player who played on the M stuff and okay. uh, who, who was then going to go on and, and play in our stuff in the sort of subsequent albums. Um, he formed a, a sort of a duo with Ross Middleton, who was a, a good sort of Scottish singer and lyricist. And they, they um, had recorded a track called "A Way You'll Never Be," and uh, they called that they, they called their outfit "Leisure Process." And um, huh. Phil and I went in to do the drums on that, and that was produced by Martin Russian, who um, had just been producing uh, the Human League, and you know, "Don't You Want Me, Baby," and all those sort of great things. Sure. So he had his own studio, um, ge- Genetic Studios, and uh, it was a very exciting time. And it could have gone either way. I mean, there was no, it wasn't. Uh, sort of down in stone that level 42 was you know was going to keep going at all because if the M thing had really really sort of cemented itself then it may have been that Phil and I would have gone on and and, you know carried on with M or if the leisure process thing had gone sort of nuts uh, because Martin Russell just kept saying yeah listen forget this level 42 nonsense you know nobody nobody's into jazz funk you want to be, uh, you know, you should come and do this. He said, because it's going to be huge. And it actually went on to become quite a, a good college hit um, in, in the States. Mm-hmm. I was going to uh, ask Mark about Wally. Um, specifically, you know, he was such a creative force behind the early parts of yeah. uh, 
level 42. How come he never really became a steady member of the group? It was it was his choice, actually, Brian. He um, because he, he sort of had this parallel career with Island Records, and um, he was one of the uh, the sort of compass point all stars or whatever they're called with Sly and Robbie and um, yeah, you know the guys that sort of would, that would be making the music for Grace sure. Jones and, and uh, Robert Palmer and, and all of these dudes. And so he while he had this sort of parallel. Um, career going on and, and I was I, I remember that Chris Blackwell who of course you know ran um, Island Records was a big Wally Badaroo fan uh, you know understandably so and, and um, so he would sort of uh, you know would always be behind whatever Wally wanted to do but Wally's uh, Wally's not the fastest um, worker in the world so you know when he sets out on an album project I mean it, it could take years and um, <laughs> that's I can imagine that could be quite difficult for the record label you know to be sort of working with but when he came in with us because of course he, he always co-wrote the tracks with us as well not all of them but but a lot of the stuff he co-wrote with us you know then I think I think he really enjoyed the fact that this is great because I mean I'm doing something very different it is fast um, you know and we always work to a deadline yeah um you know and then that's it he waves goodbye and off we go and, and we sort of go out on the road then and promote it um and boy did we we just we were gigging all the time you know, mm -hmm. just gigging all the time and the fact that we never had this sort of massive overnight success i mean mm -hmm. we were never ever overnight sensations anywhere right. um you know i think that probably th that was probably one of the reasons that wally didn't come out with us you know if we'd have if say you know if if 12 months in we'd have suddenly had like a, a huge number one and we would then be doing stadiums or, or you know the arenas i expect wally would have done it but it just didn't go like that you yeah. know we, we'd released love meeting love and it became sort of an underground club hit and yeah. a couple of the sort of top djs were touting it as you know one of their top 10 records of the year but the, the gigs that we were doing on the back of that was, you know, driving ourselves in a rusty old van, you know, just up and down the motorways. <laughs> and I, that's not very attractive to somebody like Wally who can, you know, w be jetting off to the Bahamas and, you know, and, and working there with all these sort of right. very cool dudes. So I can see why, you know, why he didn't do that. And, of course, by the time it did get round to, say, 1985, 1986, well, we were so far down the road of, of being in the groove of how we were working anyway, that I don't think it was ever really, never was never really discussed after that. Yeah. Okay. Level 42 began as a pretty much an all instrumental band, but eventually, you know, you guys decided to add some vocalists. In fact, uh, you, I thought that, uh, I think you had considered bringing another vocalist. Uh, then you decided to take the lead yourself, you along with Mike. Did you guys ever audition any other singers? Um, no, we didn't. No? Um, and, and in fact, it was, it was our first, producer Andy Soika who had this independent record label um, All Ears Music out of Harlesden, North London he was the guy that when he came down and heard us um, you know heard us jamming because we just had instrumentals and we had things it was called like funky riff number one uh, jazzy fusiony bit number two um, you know because we had no concept of actually structured songwriting we hadn't even begun that that sort of thing yet but I had a riff on bass um, and it was this long meandering riff that sort of takes forever to get round there. And it, it was the basis for Love Meeting Love. And he, he said, I quite like that one. He didn't, he wasn't overly impressed with any of it, to be quite honest, but he mm -hmm. said, I quite like that riff. Yeah. He said, if you can get a singer to sing it and come up with some lyrics and a tune, um, I'll record it for you. You know, he said, so I'll give you two weeks to do that. <laughs> and, and we went back um, to Boone and I was sharing this, this dreadful 
a, a house in North London, uh, sort of East 17. And we just got, you know, working on it. And I, I came up with the melody line and Boone came up with the lyrics. And because I came up with the melody line, I, you know, struggled my way through it. And boy, you know, was it hard work. But I didn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't doing it because I wanted to to um, to be a singer. I did it because I, I just because it was there, you know, and and I just sort of wanted to come up with a melody tune. That was all. Mike Mike had a much better voice than me, and he had this fantastic range too. So the second single that we had, "Flying on the Wings of Love," um, which Mike came up with the melody for that, mm. and so he sang it. But the the as we developed as songwriters, I was still writing melodies on an instrument, and which is why they tend to be sort of two parts because they'd start in a quite a low register and end yeah. up going far higher than I could sing. And that's where Mike would jump in and sort of take the reins. And so we ended up with this kind of unison vocals. And, you know, at the time, uh, the, the, nobody else was doing it. And it's, th- there was no secret to it. It's just that I couldn't sing the flipping song as it was. You know, I needed some help. <laughs> You know, I find it very interesting that, you know, you're, uh, as you transitioned or you transferred the lead vocals and Mike would uh, jump in with uh, a little bit of falsetto on the voices and it'd go back to yours, you'd ping pong back, that how compatible they were, that they weren't, you know, it almost, for people that really wouldn't know the vocalist and who's singing, it would almost seem as if you were switching over to falsetto because you guys were so equally paired. And yeah, I, do you know what? I wish I could. Unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> I've got, got trousers tight enough for me to get up there. <laughs> when did you first discover that that Mike was uh, going to hit some notes, or did you write him that way for for uh, his falsetta uh, voice to come in? When when how how did that play in? I'll tell you what. Well, Mike, I remember in one of my earliest sort of meetings with Mike going down to his house, he played me a tape recording of him singing the theme to uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it was, it was ear-splittingly high. It was, you know, it was the sort of thing that would break crystal vases and, uh, you know, have dogs howling at the moon. It was, it, he'd recorded that and it was just, uh, it was hilariously funny, actually. Funny. But, um, and I thought, wow, this kid can really sing high. So yeah. there we are. Cool. Mark, around uh, 1983, Standing in the Light was released... Uh, Always yeah. a, a very funky effort that was produced by Larry Dunn and Verdine White of Earth, Wind & Fire. Yeah. Um, though it wasn't an album that really broke you guys here in the United States, I always thought huh. that was such a great match. And I'm yeah, curious thanks. to uh, find out, how did you guys cross paths with uh, Larry and Verdine? Well, they, um, Larry and Verdine, they were real sweethearts um, for us. You know, they're such lovely, genuine guys and um, just genuinely enthusiastic about music, you know, and that's... That's great because that's where we all were, thought we were coming in from. And they touched base. They'd been on tour, I think, in 82. Um, they, they, they were doing a big European tour. I mean, you've got to remember back, these guys were massive. You know, they, they were just sort of the biggest thing. Um, you know, they were doing these huge arena things. Sure, and right. So we got a call from um, their office, you know, saying they'd listened to the, you know, they'd listened to the, the couple of albums of ours, really liked what we were doing and where they thought we were going and, and did we fancy working with them, you know? Because they, they used to say this, they, they used to say, you guys have got that Euro thing going. <laughs> and, and we, of course, we, we wanted to go across and really buy into, you know, we wanted to get that that good sort of American funk thing. Uh, you know, we wanted we wanted a big slice of that. And so I think that that really we, we both wanted to, to try and take something from each other. Um, and I, I'm not sure that we actually achieved that, but what we did achieve was um, a, a quite a unique sounding record. 
And, you know, when you have songs like um, uh, Micro Kid and, yeah. and particularly the Sun Goes Down, I mean, I know it, yeah. it didn't do much for us in the States, but it certainly furnished us with our first top 10 single in the UK. And, and that sort of now we're three years into the career of the band. That was a that was important. You know, mm -hmm. it was, we needed that to happen. And, um, uh, you know, so I'm, I'll always be indebted to uh, Verdine and Larry, you know. Well, that was yeah. a good good segue question because, you know, obviously Level 42 garnered success here in the States eventually by the mid-'80s, like around 85, with the song Something About You off of the World Machine album and, of course, the song Lessons in Love from Running in the Family. But, you know, I was just curious, you know, what was the process? What was it like trying to crack the market here in the States? It was um, – well, we, we did make a conscious decision to, to try and um, somehow cross over more than we, were, we had been able to do. Um, you know, in that five-year period that we we had this contract with Polydor Records here in the UK, um, and it was coming to an end. You know, the contract yeah. was up, and it was. Although we would, uh, we we just sort of delivered the. No, actually, we were just about to start writing that. We delivered the, the True Colors album, which was produced by Ken Scott, and that had given us a, 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 a hit sort of in Europe called Hot Water. Oh yeah, yeah. But, but it still wasn't getting that. You know, we, it still didn't sort of cross over to the states so january 1985 we we all sort of met up in my loft right so i had like an eight track songwriting studio i said look we gotta we gotta do something here guys you know we need to we've got to reach a bigger audience because if we don't you know then we ain't gonna they're not gonna pick up the contract on us again and and that was it we we just sort of really focused and and wrote um something about you and leaving me now which uh you know were, yeah. were two pretty strong songs and i think it it goes to show that the the sort of the intensity of our mindset at that particular point in time is because we were actually able to focus and do that i couldn't i couldn't do it now i'm not that sort of uh, i'm not as as fired up i think as i was particularly in 1985 but it was a great a great team effort yeah. um and everybody chipped in on on that song you know uh, something about you it really was a good team good team effort and shows that it can be done you know it was also a real turning point, though, for the band as far as your musical style. And it probably had everything, like you said, to do with the fact that if you didn't come up with some sort of new musical direction to crack the states and to get some sort of, uh, you know, sell a hit record, or so to speak, then, then you know, perhaps you wouldn't get the contract again. Yeah. But it kind of forced you into a more pop-oriented style. Yeah, it did. And, I, I mean, that, that, you know, the thing is that some of the hardcore found that, a bit hard to swallow, I think, some of the hardcore fans of the band, because they were, you know, they'd still be saying, oh, you know, we love, you know, we love that raw thing back from 1980 and 81, you know, the early tapes and uh -huh. all of that sort of stuff. And yeah, you know, I love that too. But I, I can't, I don't want to keep writing the same song, you know, I don't, I don't want to keep writing the same tune. I, I, I really don't. I want a, some development. I want there to be something that makes me, think oh you know i've achieved more i've you know i've learned something i've progressed mm -hmm. and and that was important and that's you know what we've tried to do and of course the, the fact is that when we did do that we picked up so many more new fans um you know who had, of course had no knowledge of where we'd come from in the first place and mm -hmm. i remember going over and working with um uh, you know, working in the States with the World Machine thing and then the Running in the Family album particularly. Right. And sort of meeting, bearing in mind that by the time we, would, we, we were on the Running in the Family album and touring with Steve Winwood and, uh, you know, Madonna and Tina Turner and such, um, you know, we, we, we sort of 
bumping into Americans, and they'd be going, oh, I love you guys. You know, we've got all your records, you know, both of them. And you think, yeah, it's funny, you know. All two of them. But, you know, they hadn't, of course, there was no knowledge of what was there. But that was nice to do. You know, I remember being switched on to... Todd Rundgren, you know, I'm a huge Todd Rundgren fan, and it was Al Murphy that turned me on to him yeah. in 1989, of all things. I mean, that late. and um, yeah. But I'll always be, you know, forever grateful to, to uh, Al Murphy for doing that because the, the great thing is is that, you know, Todd had this enormous career already, and he had something like, I don't know, 25 albums or something to unearth. So for me, the trip of discovering Todd Rundgren in 1989 and then finding out, all of this amazing music that he'd written <laughs> on was a real, you know, it's like finding a pot a gold at the end of the rainbow, something right. like that. Well, we were talking about something about you just a moment ago, and, and, you know, that was one of the tracks on CD4 of the new Living It Up box set uh, with one of the new acoustic arrangements. So uh, I want to take a quick break, and let's, uh, let's give this a listen. Something about you, the way you are so right. I couldn't live without you. 
Side note, and it has uh, it's it's about your World Machine album. My favorite track on that album. This is just throwing it out there. Is the song "Lying Still," and oh, and it might be it might be one of my very favorite tracks from Level Forty Two. Period. I just I've always loved that tune. I just <laughs> very much indeed. I think Boone Boone did a beautiful job with the lyrics on. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, uh, you know, he's a really good lyricist. Boone, when he gets it right, you know, like he did with the, the actual song "Something About You Too." This uh, has a great way of being completely direct with you. And, and means a lot, you know, means a lot to people when, mm-hmm. when they hear that coming in. Well, I was going to say, you know, after many lineup changes between, you know, 86 and 94, and I, we won't get into, you know, all the specifics on that, but around 90, I think it was around 94 is when you guys f- uh, first disbanded. And, and, you know, how was this decision made and what was the decision? Was this the decision between you and Michael Lindup? I mean, how did that all go down? Well, I'm, you know, I'm very happy to talk about the lineup changes. We've been through so many people in the band now, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, and having just come off this 30th anniversary tour with, uh-huh. you know, yet another face in the lineup. And the band sounding as good as it ever has done. It's sort of, it kind of, I don't know, it makes me feel very good about the way that things have unfolded over the years, sure, you know. Right. Yeah. The, um, you know, Phil, Phil's decision to leave the band, um, in 87, actually began in 1985. I mean, he'd been saying for the last two years that he really wasn't happy, he wanted to leave the band. Um, it was just a question of when he was going to do it. That uh-huh. was all. Yeah. Um, Boone, Boone was much more of a surprise and was much, much was really down to the stresses of being on the road for so long. Yeah. Um, you know, and we were out, we were sort of doing nine months gigging a year and it's just, that's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so, that, you know, that, that changed. And then we had Gary husband came in. Well, there was a little period where we, we had, we did one tour, I think the Tina Turner tour. And, and we had a couple of, uh, guys came in and guested with us, Paul Gendler on guitar and, mm-hmm. um, Oh, the drummer from Prefab Sprout. Um, anyway, he came in and guested with us uh, uh, and we did that Tina Turner tour. And then I'd sort of already met up with Gary and, and said, you know, did he fancy coming out with us and love to work with him? And did he know any guitarists, you know, because we we kind of in the lurch, we didn't have a guitarist either. Uh-huh. And he suggested Steve Topping, who was a friend of his from um, sort of his Leeds days. Right, Fantastic right. guitarist, Steve Topping. And... Um, and in fact, he features on Gary's. There's Gary's got a brand new album out at the moment. Uh, he's just released called "Dirty Beautiful," and Steve's on a fantastic track on that. So, um, anyway, I digress. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so these guys came in, and we did about oh, six months of touring. We went, we did some shows in Japan, wrote an album uh, in Ireland, and then went to uh, Miraval in the south of France to record the album, and. Um, I wasn't quite sure that Steve Topham was the right guy for the for the band, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I um, he left, and then Dominic Miller came down to sort of sit in with us. And mm-hmm. Dominic's been a friend for years and years. Yeah. I, I, you know, we we knew Dom from back at the Guildhall School of Music days when we used to rehearse there in 1979 and 1980. Yeah. And um, of course, Dominic is predominantly known for for being his guitar work with Sting these days. Right, that's but, right. And also Phil Collins, uh-huh. and, you know. But he's he's a lovely guy, a great guitarist too. But it wasn't, it, once again, it wasn't the right guitar for Level 42. So I was sort of hunting around and um, our engineer at the time, Julian Mendelssohn, had just been working, doing some work with Scritti Politi. And, uh, and he said, oh, you've got to hear this guy. 
um, Alan Murphy, he's fantastic, you know. So we got Al down, and he was fantastic. I mean, just a real joy to have around and great, very musical, uh, great fun. And I asked him, I said, you know, do, do, do you know any guitarists, Al, that would be willing to come out with us, you know, for like the next 18 months because we've got a lot of live work to do. And um, he said, well, I'll do it. You know, I'd love to do it. Can I do it? And he did, uh, you know. So um, that was the next lineup. And that went through, of course, until his untimely death in 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was yeah. that was a real blow. And I think that, that to me, you see, when Phil and Boone left in 1987, we knew that was going to happen. You know, they, they'd already talked about that, that this is what was going to sure, happen. Right, yeah. And it had really run its course. We'd, we'd had a good seven years. When Al passed away, that was just a real hammer blow because, um, you know, I was really enjoying the band and the, the direction that the band was taking with the Staring at the Sun album, which incidentally Boone had come in and co-wrote with us. So, that you know, that it, that it wasn't as um, acrimonious as I think a lot of people have made out over the years. Not at all. You know, we, we've always had a really good working relationship. Just the guy didn't want to work live anymore, you know, which is fair enough. Mm-hmm. So we get round to, you know, then we had Jacko Jack Check came in on guitar. Um, oh, well, actually, after that, we had Alan Holdsworth. I yeah. mean, that was fantastic. Oh, that's right, that's right. We did a UK tour um, and an album, the Guaranteed Album, with Alan Holdsworth on guitar. And that was really, it was, it was, um, it seemed like the only choice because Al Murphy had been such a huge Alan Holdsworth fan. Um, you know, that I just, and of course, Alan and Gary Husband have worked together such a lot in the past. I just thought, well, it'd be wild mm-hmm. for Alan's memory <laughs> to, to get the dude himself on and, yes. you know, and play because I knew that sitting up there somewhere, I would be looking down going, yeah, go on, get in. You know, it's fantastic. Yeah. And sitting in the studio, just, you know, listening to Alan Holdsworth shredding like this tomorrow was unbelievable. <laughs> and you get to the end of a take and you just say, man, that is, uh, that is really something, Alan. And he go, oh, you sure? Was it grim? Have you got another track? Can I do another one? <laughs> <laughs> all that thing goes on. It was, uh, but it was, and every time it was better than the last. And uh, it's fantastic, awesome player. Well, you know, during that that period after Level Forty Two disbanded, you know, you worked pretty extensively on your solo career, and you know, you, you formed a new band. But over time, you increasingly added more uh, Level Forty Two songs to your touring list. And I think eventually, yeah. you know, we, we talked earlier, you know, just a little while ago, that we sort of, you know, mentioned that uh, that band that you had formed, uh, like probably like you said after nineteen ninety eight, was the band that is now basically comprised of Level yeah. Forty Two. Yeah. You know, and also we mentioned earlier that uh, Level Forty Two just celebrated uh, the 30th anniversary. But I'm just curious to know, you know, what's next for the band? I mean, in 2006, you released your last studio album called Retroglide. Are there plans uh, for the band to go back into the studio to record new material? And I guess to add to that, we've we have heard rumors that you do have like an EP in the works. Yeah, there, there's all of that, um, all of that. We have um, when you know, I was so enjoying the. The the, sh- the shows that we did in America and you know with the, the sort of the new lineup and the festival stuff was such great fun. We had this little window um, of a couple of weeks between the last festival, um, which was the festival that we did, and then uh-huh. kicking off for the UK tour, which needed a bit of work doing on it. Um, you know, with adjusting the set and bringing some new songs in. So I, I a few years ago, I'd sort of put together a, a, a mobile recording rack to take out. In fact, it was. It was actually only 18 months ago. Um, um, that's what I sort of used to, to take round and record the shows that we did in Holland for the last DVD we did. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm quite a gear man, you know, I like it. So I've got this Tascam um, X48 hard disc recorder 
add a whole sort of bunch of Octoprey focus right front end, you know, mic preamps and yep. stuff. And, and I just got all this stuff racked up and we take it out on the road with us and record. And it suddenly occurred to me, I thought, well, you know, we, we always have a great time at sound checks. There's great jamming going on. Um, why don't I just book a rehearsal room, just a room in London, uh-huh. um, and take this thing along, you know, but hire on a desk from the sound company and just mic everything up and we'll just let rip and see what happens, you know, yeah. a bit very old school. I was sort of calling it the Level 42 old school project because this yeah. is just what we used to do back in 1980 and 1981. And it was great. We, we got seven brand new tracks down, you know, and um, it's, uh, it's an EP's worth of tunes, a uh, couple of them instrumentals. And I think this is the way to go for the future because I think that the, the way that technology affords us how we take our music these days, which is largely downloading and, um, you yeah. know, sort of cherry picking. When you, when you go on iTunes and whatnot, you see the popularity stripes and bars, you know, on albums. And you realize that, in fact, people are just sort of pulling one, two, three tracks off of an album. You know, sure. and, and it might, there might be 15 songs on there, but they're only still only taking two or three tracks. Right. Yeah. And Everything's think, a la carte now. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I think, well, you know, if this is the way it is, then that's the way it is. You know, it's, um, they didn't always used to be albums. It's just something that we got into. And I think that the pendulum has gone away from that now. So rather than sort of sit there and and force yourself to come up with 12, 15 songs, you know, to try and fill it all up, just do five, six or seven or, and get them up, you know, get them uploaded and then six months time, do it again. Yep. Yeah. Mark, do you have a, a timetable for this upcoming release? No, I don't actually. It's um it's in the it's in the can as much as musically it's there. Uh, you know, I've I have to do the vocals on that, but I mean I got back, like I said, I got back about three days ago from the tour, so I'm just gonna get my head clear. The first, first thing I want to do actually is mix the, the live audio because we, we filmed the uh, the first night at the Indigo Two in London, the uh, the venue there. I'm very pleased about, and um, so that's like a 95-minute set that, that's going to take some uh, some mixing. Well, it won't take that much mixing, to be quite honest, because the whole thing's there, isn't it? So, um, But I want to do a good job and uh, get that sort of up and running and make sure that the DVD is will be the first thing that is available, I think, um, early in the new year. That's great. If not, if not just before Christmas, but um, certainly early in the new year. And then I, I can really focus on this EP thing. And, uh, you know, get running with that. That's great. So we have a lot of uh, great things to look forward to. Um, Looking back over the 30-year history of the band, Mark, is there a specific favorite Level 42 project? Uh, Oh, that's that's really hard because there have been so many sort of firsts for me, you know, uh, with Level 42. You know, the first time we got a number one record in Germany and... You know, being sat on the way, the first time we got a TV appearance on Top of the Pops, which used to be the show to get on. The, sure. the first, the, you know, there, there are so many of these th- these sort of incidences through my life, Brian. It's very hard for me to to choose any any one, you know. But um, I, I'm going to have to say that it's probably the the show we did at uh, uh, the Paradiso in Amsterdam in in 1981 when we just come off the police tour, and uh, and I'm saying this because. I'll get brownie points because it's where I've, I've met my wife. <laughs> she was 16 years old and I was 21 or something, 22. And so anyway, she was, she would later become my wife. So that was always good. And if that doesn't get me brownie points, <laughs> um, I don't know what will. 
Hey, Marco, we're about ready to, to end pretty soon, but I, it would not be uh, appropriate if I didn't ask you on behalf of all the bassists that are listening uh, a little bit about some some tech talk here. So, um, you know, talk to us about your your instruments. I mean, everybody knows, uh, you know, the JDs and the Pangborns, the Lembics yeah. and the Fenders that you play. Yeah. To get, explain a little bit about your arsenal because you you, you have such an amazing uh, arsenal of, of tools that you use to create your music. Well, I'm... Um yeah, I'm very lucky because, uh, you know, that sort of bass manufacturers have always been very kind and, and uh, supportive, you know, mm-hmm. and I've had great relationships over the years with Trace Elliott and Ashdown Amplification, and I'm just at, currently using uh, TC Electronic stuff. I've always used their effects, but the, I've just sort of tried out the, the new app head, the RH450, which uh, I'm enjoying very much. I'm using, the bases I'm using right now are, are the Status Graphite, King Bass, um, and Rob uh, very kindly made a couple of 30th anniversary editions for me. Um, and that you can check all that stuff out on the www.statusgraphite.com site. Beautiful, uh, absolutely beautiful instruments. And, uh, you know, I'm, I particularly enjoy using these because I had a hand in the design, uh, which is always makes it sort of that much more personal. Yeah, and, sure. Um, you know, I, I do these things that uh, sort of a couple of years back, I put on a few extra pounds and I was able to say to Rob, look, could you make a bigger bass to make me look thinner? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And he did. It was great. He said, yeah, we call it the thin and crispy. So it's like a big pizza. <laughs> so uh, that, was the, that was the King 2 bass. Um, and then there was the King. We've sort of had a King bass really since about 2001, I think 2000, 2001, millennium. Yeah, 10 years now. Um, before that, of course, I, I was, I've had some Fender Jazz Deluxe basses um, that they made a, a series of 42, like a signature model for me, where mm-hmm. they used a, a flat fingerboard. Because since my um, Alembic days, I've always really liked having sort of no camber on the neck. And Fender, of course, were notoriously had this big old camber, you know. Yeah. Um, and they made a, 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 you know, a few of those for me, and that was very nice. But I did find that they couldn't sort of take the pounding that they were getting. And uh, I'd be sort of wind up, by song three, stood knee-deep in a bunch of grub screws and bridge pieces. So all of that so, uh, didn't really work out. Um, the Alembics, just beautiful. You know, a high point for me was, you know, when we were playing Pine Knob just outside San Francisco there, this sort of dude came up with a suitcase of these bookmatch woods and said, would you like to choose, you know, a couple of woods, Mark? We'll make some bases for you. And that was the Alembic guys, you know, and that was wow. fantastic because, of <laughs> course, the Stan Clark connection, it was right. just like, Wow, I must have arrived somewhere, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then before that, the very first bass I ever got that I owned was um, my JD Supernaturals uh, Double Zero Three SA, and it was um, the reason I bought that is because it looked like an Olympic, and uh, and it sounded great, of course. But it was in a store in Newport, uh, sorry, in London, uh, Shaftesbury Avenue. And when we just got our first uh, advance from from Polydor Records, we we sort of had, all took a share of it to to go and get ourselves instruments. And and I walked in the store and there there was this bass, but it was I had five hundred pounds was my share of the money to to buy the gear with, mm-hmm. and the bass was on for five seven five, <laughs> and I so I said you know look, can I would you take five for it? And they said well we'll ask the guy because it's sale or return anyway. They phoned him up John Diggins, and he said well you can have it but no case. So I walked out with the the, the bass guitar without a case and. Um, <laughs> I did get a case a bit later on than that, but that was that was a great sort of thing for me. And um, y- you know that the I sort of got a rep quite quickly as a bass player, 
at home here in the UK. And, and I think Rob Green, uh, sorry, uh, John Diggins, well, and Rob Green too, actually, I think they've done really well out of our sort of union over the years, you know, of, uh, of me sort of playing the basis for them and, and they get to flog a few. So it's, it's a good sort of win-win situation, really. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we've spent like over an hour and 15 minutes and I think our minds are blown. because you so much longer though. It, you, you, <laughs> I, you've given, no, 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 no. It's, it's flown by and it's like, you know, I'm looking at Eddie thinking we could do another entire show if we wanted to. You know, I think there's man. so much material, so many things we wanted to ask, but I, I'll wrap it up with one last question and who knows, maybe down the road and, you know, uh, when, as things progress here, maybe we can connect with you again. But my last question is, is, and I'm sure all the, it, it's another tech question. I'm sure all the bassists out there will love, uh, knowing about the LEDs on your fretboards, you know, <laughs> what was, yeah, was this your idea? Tarty, isn't it? it has to be said. Go yeah. on. Sorry. Well, was this your idea to implement this affecting your bass, or how did you uh, how did you come up with that? Yeah, it's really right. cool. Yeah, and thank you. Yeah, I think I, I think I had the my LEDs the first. It would have been John Diggins who um, put that together, uh-huh. and it, I think from about 1982, I think was the first was the first JD I had that had the LEDs in, mm-hmm. and um, it's. Uh, y- yeah, it's just a it's just a something that that you sort of you. It's a bit like drawing Excalibur out of the case, <laughs> you know. You sort of if you want it to go zing, and um, right. I've just always done that now, you know. And of course, that nowadays they've got so sophisticated. It did go wrong one time that there was a guy I was using uh, when I did the one man album, uh, and I did this sort of week at the jazz cafe. I was using Bernie Goodfellow basses uh-huh. uh, for this particular period, and Eden amplifiers actually, and. Um, yeah, when I was playing, it, Bernie, I had these lovely sort of, I suppose they were faux sort of jazz basses or music man sort of bass basses. Uh-huh. They were lovely. And we did these shows and he said, oh, look, I've got much better basses for it. So he took those two Bernie Goodfellow ones back and then sold them and then bought me these two bloody horrible ones. <laughs> and But he, he put lights up the neck that moved. And he was more interested in the fact he said, look, he said, <laughs> he said, it's like sound to light. And man, it just freaked my head in because I, I just couldn't believe it. Every time I hit the bass, the lights moved on the neck, uh-huh. and it so threw me out, so disorientating. I just said, I can't. I'm going to have to wear like a blindfold because <laughs> <laughs> every time I hit it, the, the frets move. You know, di- and it's, so I haven't got a clue where I am, and so it was a, a bit of a disaster. So that was one step too far, I think. That's with the lights. Almost like a, a spinal tap uh, bit. <laughs> it's very much. <laughs> Hey, hey, Mark. I'm taking a look on uh, on on the web right now. On that's on a picture of the 30th anniversary. Um, the your base. That is simply beautiful. Uh, it's it's a stunning bit of work, isn't it? I, I tell you, Rob is, is such a fantastic luthier. Um, you know, it's a just an honor to work with him. Really, you know, he's a very nice guy. He's a better golfer than me too, which is worrying. <laughs> well, cool. Well, Mark, you know, you, you've spent such great time with us, and we really appreciate um, everything you, you've you've shared with us. And I uh, wanted to thank Brian Pearson, our correspondent, uh, for joining us today too. Um, yeah, nice talking to you, Brian. Well, it was you, such you? a a great honor uh, speaking with you today, Mark. Well, you're too kind, fellas. And Rick, you know, um, anytime, man, just drop me a line. And we'll do it again if you want. That's awesome. Yeah, we may want to do that down the road as things progress and we, you know, see what else is happening with you and the band. And, and for more information, obviously, about Level 42, you can go to their website at level42.com. And I think that uh, your webmaster, is it Morgan Roussel? Is that correct? Yeah, Morgan, he's the man. He's, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I can't understand a word he says, but he's the dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, it's, it's a fantastic site and he keeps it updated regularly and there's always great information on there. So. 
He's a good man. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. Well, thanks a lot, Mark, and we'll, we'll talk to you down the road. And uh, if we don't get to talk to you before this, happy holidays to you there. In, in yeah, the you too, guys. Merry Christmas, eh? And a happy new year all around. All right. Take care. Thank Bye you so it. much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Mark King from Level 42 for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to join us again on January 3rd as Inside Music Cast kicks off 2011 with an interview with Simon Phillips. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Uwe Reith. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast.